0: Welcome to the Black Theater History Podcast. I'm Katie Sane. Our guest this episode is Angelica Cherie. Angelica Cherie is a playwright, musical theater bookwriter, and lyricist, screenwriter, and poet. She received her BA in theater from UCLA, an MFA in playwriting from Columbia University, and a second MFA in musical theater writing from NYU. The plays of her Prophet Cycle trilogy include The Seeds of Abraham, The Sting of White Roses, and Groundation. I Will Not Lie to David. Other plays include Slow Gin Fits, The Yin and the Yang, and Berta Berta, which, at the time of this broadcast, is enjoying its world premiere at the Contemporary American Theatre Festival in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. At the time of this broadcast, Angelica will also be premiering Learn to Speak Doll, a new children's play inspired by the great Dr. Maya Angelou at Peppercorn Theatre. Angelica and collaborator Ross Baum received the prestigious Richard Rogers Award for their musical Gun and Powder. Also with Baum, she was commissioned to write the short children's play, A Letter to Auntie Rosa, as well as the official anthem of the National Children's Theater of South Africa. Angelica was the master playwright in the Frank Silvera Writers' Workshop Inaugural 3 and in 3 Playwright Festival and is written for the Obie award-winning 48 Hours in Harlem Festival. Angelica took a break from her first day of tech for Berta Berta at the Contemporary American Theater Festival to talk with me via Skype about her play. Angelica, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. Um, so I always begin, tell us about how you came to here. Who were, We know where you studied, but with whom did you study? Who were your mentors? Who were your great influences? Talk to us about that.
1: Sure. So in a funny way, it started in junior high school being an actor mm-hmm. and doing lots of Shakespeare competitions um, in middle school. And I was very involved in drama then. And then when I went to high school, I went to just a very heavily athletic based high school that had no, um, uh, theater whatsoever. So of course I became a cheerleader, and then, <laughs> uh, you know, um, there was a production of Greece in my freshman year and then no other theater up until my junior year. And then that's when I wrote and, um, produced, and directed my first full-length play. I had written... Your um, junior year in high school. In high school. (laughs) I had written... (laughs) You know, it was kind of a rogue mission. Like, I had written a a one-act my freshman year because there was this Playwrights in the Classrooms um, sort of workshop that we did, and that was, like, a one-act play that came from that. That was my first play ever. And I thought, huh, interesting writing, not acting in it. I like this. Um, Mm. And then, so two years later at 16, that's when I wrote the full length and said, I'm tired of there not being any theater here. And let me go ahead and make some space for that to happen. Um, And once that happened, it was just over. I knew that that was what I wanted to do was to create a career around making theater. And so, you know, went to UCLA and then, you know, moved to New York and at Columbia, the, the, um, thesis, the nature of the thesis year is that you get to pick a mentor, mm.
0: get to
1: reach out to a professional mentor and just write this letter and hope that they respond <laughs> <laughs> and hope that, you know, that they would be willing to mentor you on the creation and of your thesis play, which for me was the Seeds of Abraham. Mm-hmm. And that mentor was Lynn Nottage. <sighs> What a, oh what a gift. What a gift! <laughs> she's just so open and down to earth and generous and gracious and um, she's continued to be um, a support and mentor throughout the you know my transition from straight plays to musical theater um, mm-hmm. and Deborah Brevort, happened to be like my musical guardian angel. She kind of <laughs> scouted me for the NYU graduate musical theater writing program while I was at Columbia. And she kind of, mm. we took lyric writing crash, crash course from her. And she approached me and said, you know, you have like a talent for this. There's a fellowship for women of color. If you're interested okay. in continuing to do a second master's when you're done with Columbia. And I thought, great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> of course, but that's it. Oh, and of course, um, and her husband, Chuck Cooper, um, in the Carolina Change. That just basically changed my mind about musical theater entirely. Mm. I didn't know what was possible in musical theater until, uh, you know, setting that piece. Um, so, um, and so, yes, yeah, she kind of led me into musical theater. And, you know, through and then since then, another big sister and mentor playwright has been Dominique Mariso. Uh. She's just incredible. She's out of some sort of, like, gift from August Wilson and other theatrical... <laughs> that's right, <laughs> that's right. She's amazing.
0: Excellent. I'm, I'm glad that you spoke so much about the musical theater training and your street play straight theater training. Um, because moving into talking about the work that you have opening the end of next week... Right. Um, <laughs> looking at Berta Berta you have this piece that is so steeped in music but it is not a musical in any way um but really the the rhythm and the music and the musicality of your own it's almost like your lines are lyrics throughout um and so I talk to me about the the origins of this piece. I mean for our, our listeners, just to let them know that this is based on the work song from Parchment Farm, um, and that that song itself is at the base of this story. Um, Absolutely. so yeah, talk to us about how how music played a role in this creation? Where it was what was the origin of the story? Where'd it come from? Absolutely.
1: So I was sitting in the signature theater off Broadway um, in 2013 watching the Ruben Santiago Hudson production of the piano lesson, mm. which was phenomenal, first of all, and was the first production of the piano lesson that I had seen of course mm. was familiar with the piece and read it but it's different obviously being you know present for production and sitting in the room the moment where the men get together and sing Berta Berta yeah. oh my gosh I was not ready <laughs> I just it's one thing to read the text of that thing to just be in the room with a prison mm-hmm. song live it just um, the music reverberated in my body in a very visceral way because you know, we're not used to processing live prison songs, you know, we're Mm -hmm. used to being in room with gospel or being in the room with jazz, being in the room with hip hop, but prison songs are, you know, chiefly a thing of the past. We do not experience them live anymore. And so to place that form back in the room was jarring and chilling. Mm. Um, And so I didn't investigate much further at that point. It just sat with me. And I thought, what was this experience? Um, And then a year later at NYU, when I was doing research for my musical, my thesis musical there, it's set in the 1890s in in Texas. And so my collaborator, Mm -hmm. Ross, and I were doing research to get sounds and the soundscape and the musical palette of the time. And we looked up work songs and field hollers and prison songs Mm -hmm. and Berta Berta came up. And that is when I learned that it was not a thing of August Wilson's creation, that it was an actual prison song from Parchment Farm, Mississippi State Penitentiary and still left it alone. But then a year after that, Jay Cole.
0: (laughs) I was wondering where that came in time wise.
1: (laughs) um, August Wilson, to YouTube, you know, mm-hmm. to J. Cole. And I thought, okay, this is enough. This song has followed me three times. It's saying something to me. So I start digging, trying to find, okay, because my the thing that I wanted to know is how do we get here? Who did this mm-hmm. come from? This song is so specific and vague <laughs> at the same time. There are such specific details about Berta and about where they are mm-hmm. and about, railroad men, farming men about getting married, don't wait on me. Like, there was such right. an implied narrative mm-hmm. without it being explicitly named. So I, it just kind of gave me this sort of you know, craving to know who this man was who created the song because it got so far away from him that we don't even really know mm-hmm. who he is. And this love song, frankly, that's a work song, but it's a, such it's a, it's an interesting prison narrative. It's a love song, yeah. and it's so palpable, the love and the and the desire between them, that the other men, not knowing who Berta is, but they have a Berta of their own, Right. they just start to sing, and it just gets passed down. I wanted to know who he was and who she was. I mean, mm-hmm. that's got to be a bad woman. <laughs> you know what I mean?
0: Um. Oh, I love I also love um the character, Berta, as you create her that like you describe her as like majestic when she enters that like her robe is clinging to every curve of her body that that she wears her sleeping cap as a crown, you know I mean, and from the page one of actually reading the text, uh, you know, as a director, I knew instantly mm. who that woman was supposed to be when she came into the space and I have to say that it never, I always um, thought about the story from the men's perspective of like what it means to be away from your woman, what it means to be separated and, you know, torn from your family and all of those things. And I never thought about her ever. And when I first read that in your piece, I was like, oh, well, of course that's who she is. Of course. <laughs> of course. How did you find her voice? Did you start with Bert or did you start with Leroy who for our listeners is the, the male character, the the man, um,
1: you know, honestly, it was the relationship that I started Mm. with and that the relationship to me informed all the rest of the character choices. And because the, it couldn't have just been a clean, they were married, they were in love, you know, they had a family, they had children, and then he left. Like, mm-hmm. there's just too much longing that is implied in the text of the song that I just felt like this, it had to be one of those, the one that got away. Right. One of those situations where it's like, I want this to happen so bad, but destiny and everything in our paths is telling us that we can't be together. Mm-hmm. But the the proportions of the love and the passion are so epic that it shakes the foundations of every single life choice that they've ended up making and it leads him to, to parchment. Um, so Berta just kind of, you know, came from knowing this black woman who has had to carry the burden of so much loss, so much abuse, so much pain, but still garnered the strength, mm-hmm. the vitality, and then the passion, the love. Um, I think that there's so much heat between the two of them because of as much smoldering
0: fire that they both bring mm-hmm. to the table. I, I the literature that CATF is using to market this is like it's a sensuous love story. Oh, um, and, right. and I'm very interested that love is is parenthetical in that, so mm-hmm. I'll ask you about that mm-hmm. in a minute too. But, sure. um, but the sensuality of this and their true passion is, I mean, it jumps off the page. I can't wait to see it in production. Um, because, it, I mean, it is at the core of what their relationship has been, what they both want it to be, what he wants it to be, what she's, I think, afraid of it being, um, right. you know, but it's, it's such a strong emotional piece. I know that CATF is great about involving their playwrights in everything. Um, yes. So love being parenthetical in a sensuous love story what kind of a choice was that and how did you feel about it like was that your choice or your input where where did that come yeah. from so that was that was a CATF marketing
1: choice that i found intriguing you know i think that if it were just named a love story which i think it can be
0: mm-hmm.
1: well i should say it, it has the proportions of this epic origin story Mm -hmm. this is this is sort of like you know it's it's of greek proportions like this could be easily the explanation of how two greek gods Mm -hmm. come together and the explanation of seasons and time and you know but they are black bodies which is revolutionary Mm -hmm. um and so you know you don't we often don't call those stories love stories but it is deep in the passion and the love of it. And that's why I can get on board with love just sort of being something that's um, parenthetically like hinted at, like it's a love story, but understand that what you're coming to see is about the prison industrial complex Mm -hmm. and about the um, desecration of black families Mm -hmm. and about the, the emasculation of black men and about so many other different things. But but I think that love needs to be mentioned because there's there's not enough narrative for us just about our passion, about our sexuality, and about our love-making in such open, liberal ways. It's always sort of couched in some other moment of struggle. Mm -hmm. And it should just be a two-person play about their love and about their passion and everything else that is... Something I think is, that's unique to the piece.
0: How does their relationship, you, you, you talked about the fact that, I mean, looking at them as Greek gods and goddesses you know, really sure. makes a lot of sense. Um, it also takes us into this metaphysical place that mm-hmm. exists in, in right. this story. And right. how is that related? Um, where did that come from in terms of their story? Uh, and why does it make sense? Um, As we explore, not just the relationship, but the history of this song. Absolutely. So there's, I'm borrowing from the
1: blues legend, Robert Johnson, Mm -hmm. who has um, this, his most famous song, Hellhounds on My Trail. And his narrative is that he made this deal with the devil, that if the devil would make him a famous rich, wealthy, known blues singer that he would give his soul to the devil. And in that myth, he has acclaimed so much of that fame and fortune as a blues singer, but his death, which I find very eerie and interesting. He's never, it's never been solved. Like he just sort of disappeared. No one knows where he, Mm -hmm. where he went, what happened to him. No one's found Mm -hmm. his body. Um, And so there's so much mythology in African-American history Mm -hmm. that I feel gets lost because so much Mm. of it was just orally passed on. Like my grandmother and her sisters talked about haints, you know, and regionally the the difference, um, there would be different definitions. In Texas, it was just basically the soul of a slave that was um, slaughtered and, you know,
0: still lurking in the in-between. And I didn't ask this when you were talking about your high school. Where is original home for you? Where did you grow up? Home
1: for me is Los Angeles. Okay. I'm a California native, but my grandmother migrated from Texas to California in the 40s, so we've got a lot of that Southern, Mm -hmm. and that's the the truth for a lot of African-American people in California. Like, they're a generation or two back, Mm -hmm. come from, like, Texas, Louisiana, but so some other people refer to Haines, um like in Georgia and then like mm-hmm. the Carolinas, as just any sort of a, of a soul of someone who died against their will, whether they were murdered or, you know, in an accident or some kind of thing where their soul is sort of trapped.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that's just I like taking the pieces of our history and our culture and our narratives that don't, that aren't, that are somewhat endangered, I would say, yeah. of being lost. And I thought, of course, for this sort of an epic proportional story with Leroy, who is in, for all intents and purposes, this sort of epic heroic ancestor that has no name nice. <laughs> in our, we mm-hmm. don't you know, who, I still don't, you know, Leroy Grant is just my offering, but we may never know who he is, but he's affected us so far beyond that I thought it has to marry with some of that spirituality and, and fold in with that mythology around the underworld the spirit world and what Mm -hmm. sort of deals and compromises that you have to make in the name of people you love
0: absolutely well we are very nearly out of time to close I think one of the things that as as we seek to put back into the narrative things that are not there uh, from all of my interviewees I'm compiling a black theater canon and so I'm curious to know what piece what one play you think is the required reading in the black theater canon
1: you know so I thought about this very long and hard and I honestly not just because it's my play and I know that this is probably one of those things that happens <laughs> You're like I am totally honestly truthfully not even in a self-serving way, I really feel passionately about Berta Mm -hmm. being included in this canon because of some of the things that we talked about. The fact that we are speaking about love Mm -hmm. in a way that's revolutionary and sexuality. And because of the tie in between the prison industrial complex of today and Mm -hmm. then now and how it hasn't changed much, I really do feel strongly that this is a piece that can withstand time and narrative and needs to be talked about in that way.
0: Well, and with thanks to you, this play also puts into the canon some things that we don't see um, and that Absolutely. we have not seen before. So, um so we thank you for that. That's Ms. my well. hope. <laughs> and Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk thank with you. us today. It's been an absolute blessing. What a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, making the time. That was Playwright Angelica Cherie, who's played Berta Berta by the time of this release, is currently playing at the Contemporary American Theater Festival in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. This is the Black Theater History Podcast. I'm KB Sane. Our music is by Kaya Caterhurst from the album Nine Pin, which can be found on iTunes and wherever else fine music is sold. The Black Theater History Podcast is produced with the support of Art 26201, which is dedicated to the promotion of public and community art in Buchanan, West Virginia and works to promote the creative and inspirational opportunities in their community. If you like what we're doing here and want to support our work, you can make a donation to the podcast, or learn about sponsorship or episode commissions at Blacktheaterhistory.com. And while you're online, like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter for updates and information about the podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Black theater Pod. That's theater with an R-E. And listeners, you also make this podcast possible. Make sure to subscribe to the Black Theatre History Podcast on Apple Podcasts. We're all in this together, and we've got a lot more to learn. Thanks for listening.
1: Some handsome-